Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. So I'm going to take a poll. How many people here feel beleaguered? One. (laughs) I don't know if I feel beleaguered. I feel jet-lagged. I feel disoriented. I I feel beleaguered, just mm-hmm. from one direction, but I do, I feel besieged. besieged. Yes, to lay beset. siege to, beset with difficulty. Yeah. Beset, beleaguered, and besieged. Oh. All the bad <laughs> verbs. Can I point out that uh, Trump does not usually use three-syllable words? That was a big word in, in his tweet about in his tweets General and, um, and uh, three-syllable adjectives to describe his attorney general is particularly rare, so I think we should probably invest a lot of meaning in his use of the well, word. Well, maybe delivery. he's growing into the job. Yeah, he's, yeah, he's elevated to three-syllable. He's the words, one so. doing the, the beleaguering. <laughs> <laughs> right. Just like of all the words you're going to – it's not really an insult. It's like – he it's sat be- down and thought, "What can I do to my attorney general? It, I know I'll beleaguer him." It's kind of it's kind of like you know if um, like somebody who's accused of spousal abuse refers to his spouse as abused, right? Right. Such <laughs> <laughs> are the times we live in. Hello and welcome to Rational Security, the beleaguered edition. I'm Shane Harris, a sleep deprived reporter. I was up at 5 o'clock yesterday morning, lying in bed, cuddling with Jerry Kushner's statement to the Senate Intelligence Committee. Yeah, I was, <laughs> I was so creepy. I was doing something similar, only it was on a couch. <laughs> I'm like, rolling over, the phone's going off. I'm like, yes, this is your life now. <laughs> yeah. We were told to prepare for it, too. And I'm like, really? 5 a.m.? You couldn't, like, you couldn't push. He's not meeting with him until 10. Or did you give it to the night before? No, it was good. It was good because we, we, we got up early. We read the statement. We had a day. He came out of the testimony and, and, and gave a statement. It was short. It was on video. Uh, everything was very well organized. It was actually. probably the most effective messaging that the White House has, has actually implemented Probably because the White House 20th. wasn't in charge of it. There you go. <laughs> it's what happens Funny when you have works. competent counsel running things. And a good PR guy. Um, we're all here in the Jungle Studio, back from various trips. Hither and yon, I'm here with Susan Hennessy, Ben Wittes, and Tamara Kaufman Wittes. Hi, guys. Hi, Shane. Hi. Were you hither or yon? Uh, I think I was hither and you were yon. Okay. I think, right? Yeah, I was yon. Yeah, you were yon. We're going to talk about that. Um, this week on the podcast, President Trump attacks his beleaguered Attorney General Jeff Sessions over Hillary Clinton and Russia, because that all makes sense. Uh, Jared Kushner talks to congressional investigators about his meetings with Russians, and Tammy and I are going to bring back reports from the regions, reports from the fields. East and West. Of the Middle East and Aspen, Colorado. <laughs> um, let's talk first about um, Jeff Sessions. Uh, so kind of two big events since we last met. Uh, there was a big Washington Post story. Uh, describing intelligence intercepts of the Russian ambassador Sergei Kislyak, reporting back to his bosses in Moscow that he had had a conversation with Jeff Sessions about campaign and policy-related 
issues, which was important because all along Jeff Sessions has been saying, I didn't discuss matters pertinent to the campaign with the Russian ambassador. Now, at least the ambassador, according to reports, claims that he did. Uh, And President Trump has been attacking Sessions in a series of tweets. He gave an interview with the New York Times saying he never would have hired him if he knew he was going to recuse himself from the Russia investigation. And then this morning, as we record this on Tuesday, uh, the president is blaming Sessions for not investigating fully Hillary Clinton and what he calls her criminal misdeeds and acts. Uh, so putting aside there, the president actually accusing somebody of committing a crime. Um, let's just talk about, uh, Ben, let me take what you first on this. As, as a practical matter, let's take two questions. Let's take the first, more of the practical matter first and the policy matter second. A, what does this do to the functioning of the Justice Department to have the president attacking the attorney general in this way and appearing to undermine him and attack his credibility? And B, um, how different is this from the president going after the FBI director? I mean, is this how, – how out of bounds is this or is there some latitude given to the president to criticize the attorney general over policy or political issues since he's a political appointee? Well, we're so far out of bounds here that – uh, the concept of bounds may not be the relevant. Bounds uh, are beleaguered. Uh, you know, I, I would think of this as we're we're on a different continent than the bounds, <laughs> um, wherever a boundless land, we're in outer space. Right. All right. Well, let's let's take this in order. First of all, the moment remember the attorney general uh, serves at the pleasure of the president, which means. If you say publicly that uh, if you that you don't have confidence in the attorney general, you regret appointing him. He's been very unfair to you. Uh, he should not still be the attorney general if you say that about him. And so, what the the, the incoherence of what Trump is saying, which is, uh, you know, I I, I I I basically think ill of the guy, and I think he's. Uh, hasn't done a good job and he's been unfair to me, but I'm going to leave him there. Uh, kind of makes no sense. Uh, secondly, the of course it also makes sen- no sense for Sessions to stay, and yet he hasn't resigned. Right. So that's a that is in some ways a more complicated question. I'm trying to, uh, but okay. I, I agree with you. But um, but each thing in turn. Each thing in turn. Secondly, the. The impropriety of what the president has done with respect to Hillary, compl- Hillary Clinton is, is monumental. Um, to demand an investigation or as president to announce a, a, a law enforcement action should happen against a named individual who has in fact been the subject of an investigation on exactly that matter and at least for criminal purposes was cleared. Uh, is an outrageous abuse of power um, on its own terms. And then when you add to it um, the uh, attacks on not just some, but the rest of federal law enforcement leadership, that is the deputy attorney general, the acting FBI director, who, by the way, is only the acting FBI director because you fired the FBI director, um, and the special counsel and his staff. I mean, you really do have a situation where the president has kind of declared war on federal law enforcement. And it's not just that I can't think of an analog for 
some piece of that in history, for, for, for the whole of that in history. I actually can't, with the exception of the fact that presidents sometimes criticize and say that special counsels or independent counsels have conflicts of interest, as, for example, Clinton did with Ken Starr, and their, you know, attacks on independent counsels are, are ugly, but they're not new. With the exception of that piece, there's no component of this that has an analog in any of our lifetimes. Can I push you on the practical question, though, of what does this mean for the men and women working in the Justice Department and in the FBI? Because it seems like it could have a paradoxical effect. These leaders, the attorney general and the deputy attorney general, have behaved in ways that might well have caused some some concern among the workforce about whether these guys are are going to lead them, you know, and, and stand up for them. Do these attacks from the president maybe make the workforce feel better? Like, well, they must be doing something right if they're pissing the guy off this much. Um, maybe they have more integrity than we knew. <laughs> How are we supposed to think about this? Well, so I, I think, first of all, the workforce is not a monolith. And I, I, I fully expect that different people would react differently to it. For a lot of the, the workforce, uh, since the president's ire is really about only that investigation that affects him personally, which is, of course, part of what makes it so corrupt. Uh, for uh, for most of the workforce, I think this is probably demoralizing, but is not an immediate threat to the work that they do. On the other hand, it does have the capacity to decapitate the organization entirely, which is to say, when the president talks this way about the attorney general, you have to ask the question whether the attorney general is going to be there tomorrow, either because he might get fed up with it or because the president might pull the trigger and remove him. You have to ask the same question about the deputy attorney general. And as a member of that workforce, you have to ask those questions now every single day. I think, you know, we we did the session's death watch uh, edition of Rational Security a few weeks ago, and that death watch is certainly like moved to a different level. And tick, that, tick, tick. Right, and that ref <laughs> that that affects the the institution uh, functioning on a day to day basis. Moreover, I do think there's a morale issue here that's really significant. This is not the way the president is supposed to talk about the law enforcement function. And if your uh, job is to do independent law enforcement and without fear or favor and to uh, and that's the way you conceive of your job. And then the president of the United States is criticizing the attorney general and the special counsel for not investigating his political opponents. Uh, that that's is something we knew. I mean, that's sort of that's been consistent from the get go with this administration. So I'm not sure it's a change. Oh, the tone of it this week is, a, I mean, you know, look, he was terrible during the campaign. And then during the transition, he specifically kind of backed off some of that stuff. And, you know, there have been obviously times since he took office, particularly when he accused his predecessor of of criminal activity with respect to uh, surveillance. But by and large, he has not been braying for Hillary Clinton's criminal indictment or investigation over the last few months. And to criticize Jeff Sessions for like whatever one thinks of Jeff Sessions for not harassing Hillary Clinton 
um, you know, with further criminal investigations, that is a step really different from his prior behavior. And it's outrageous. I mean, one of the things that's sort of remarkable is, you know, we usually think of people in uh, in confirmed positions as having sort of some power, right? Whenever he was first, especially in that transition and early period, we were talking about the notion of like principled resignations, the power that Mattis was going to have, the power that Kelly and Tillerson, if they decided to use it, because if they resigned, if they were fired, then the president would have to get, would have to confirm somebody else. And that was sort of a restraint and and how that actually doesn't even really seem like a relevant consideration here that well if he fires sessions you know that he wouldn't that the, the, the congress would sort of stand up and say well we're not going to confirm some guy you like uh, or some guy that you think is better and and i think it's a little bit of a demonstration of uh, the peril of the way they reacted or did not react to the Comey firing and then the nomination of Christopher Members Ray. of Congress, you mean. Exactly. That they, you know, right, you had sort of, you had this, this you know, transgressive breach of the norm. And then instead of doing what you would have expected them to do, which is saying you have to hire, you have to get someone from the opposite party. It has to be someone who's sort of, right, is viewed as uh, particularly independent from you, right, really sort of forcing his hand. They, they allowed him to pick someone who clearly is sort of a a middle ground person acceptable to the president. So this has created an expectation in Trump that, yeah, he can fire whoever he wants and actually wind up with someone he likes better. Right. He can get you Giuliani or Chris Christie. Right. (laughs) Oh, God. Here we go again. Well, and these are the trial balloons that are being floated. And Ted Cruz. Right. But, you know, there's another dimension here. I think that's a really interesting point, by the way, that Firing Sessions does not, in fact, create a problem for this White House. He, The president could reasonably expect, based on Congress's past behavior, that he could get someone confirmed in the job that he would like better. That's a little worrisome to me. And non-recused. But, right. But in addition right. to that, I think there's – although Chris Christie would probably be recused for this, on the Russia stuff for the same reason that Sessions was, which is that he was involved in the campaign, right? Um but there's another dimension here, which I think extends beyond the Justice Department, which is we also talked a lot earlier in this administration about the extent to which cabinet officials would be representing the president, using the authority of the president. That's the standard way these things work, that cabinet officers, especially on national security, when they speak, speak on behalf of the administration and carry some weight. And what's happened this week with Donald Trump publicly lambasting his attorney general is that it it is a manifestation of the extent to which None of these cabinet officials speak with the authority of the president. None of them speak in the, you know, in the voice of the president. And in fact, over and over again, he's demonstrated, he's kind of gone out of his way to demonstrate that they're not speaking on his behalf and they don't carry his authority. And so he's undercut them and emasculated them. Sessions, what's going on right now is sort of the latest and the, and the most egregious manifestation of that. But this is a cabinet that can't work effectively because it can't speak for the president. So if you guys had to predict, do you think A, session stays, B, he gets fired, or C, he resigns? I think he will. I really do think he can. He thinks he can wait out the president's mood on this. So I I think it will be delayed. But I think ultimately he will offer his resignation if given. I mean, he he reportedly he's offered to resign in the past, and the president had turned him down at the time. And that is the role of sort of the executive officer. You you offer your resignation, and if the president decides to accept it, then 
then you go. I, I think we're going to learn something about sessions over the next two weeks, which is whether the man has an ounce of self-respect at all. And I, I, I don't like, – like lots of people have lots of nasty things to say about Seth, Jeff Sessions, and I'm not commenting on any of that. This is just an analytic point. Um, it's a very unusual position to be serving at the pleasure of somebody who is ridiculing you in public on a regular basis. And I think, you know, whether, whether or not he's willing to tolerate that is partly a dignitary question that, uh, I think you just don't know the answer about somebody until you watch him try to do it. And I was surprised if, you know, if somebody ever, this message to Strobe Talbot, if you ever talk about me the, in public <laughs> the way uh, 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 Trump talked about Sessions to the New York Times, I'm not coming to work the next day, okay? <laughs> I'm, you know, like, like, and that's not because I, you know, you know, that that's just because like I don't work for people who talk to me about me that way. Right. And but there's also I think that assumes that personal dignity um, is a significant motivator. This is somebody who has been in elected office for a long time, which means he's already engaged in all kinds of public debasement and humiliation in order to get into positions of power, presumably because the power itself has some inherent value to him. He already in this role as attorney general has been pursuing dimensions of a public policy agenda that he's held for a long time right. on immigration, on civil rights and stuff like that. And so he gets to do that as long as he's attorney general. And the minute he's not attorney general, he doesn't. So I, I don't think we should assume that his personal dignity means a heck of a lot to him. And that doesn't mean that he's um, uh, powerless or, or, or worthless or a non-entity. I think that's right. I do, right? You think about these people who've given up so much and, and have gone through so much humiliation and then they get five months or three weeks in the White House, right? So is Sessions really going to go from being a United States senator to attorney general for six months to nothing? I I, I do think that this element of of not only wanting to to maintain the power he has, but recognizing that as soon as he steps down from the attorney general seat, he's done. There's He's not coming back into Congress again. That the, that might be a very powerful motivator for him. All right, let's talk about <clears throat> another beleaguered member of the administration, Jared Kushner. <laughs> One who cannot simply resign from right, his relationship exactly. with yeah. Trump. <laughs> You're sort of in the family, as they like to say. Um, Jared Kushner, of course, put out a lengthy statement on Monday morning about his meetings with Russian officials. He actually revealed that he did, in fact, talk to Sergei Kislyak at this event at the Mayflower, of which there's been a lot of speculation swirling around that as well with respect to Jeff Sessions and whether he had a meeting there. Jeff Sessions says that he did not. Um, uh, and then uh, Kushner came out and gave a statement at the White House. By the way, how many people, for you've never heard Jerry Kushner speak, totally thought he was going to come out and be like, I am Jared Kushner. <laughs> His voice is striking. Am, it is very striking. He's also yeah. not a very charismatic or convincing it's, speaker. It's actually not a powerful voice. It's interesting. My, my colleague was like, oh, this is like so many kids I went to summer camp with in New Jersey. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, but yeah. you know, sometimes those mousy ones can be dangerous. That's true. <laughs> um, but let's talk about the practical effect of too of, of what he did. I mean, I'm I'm fascinated, and I want to get you guys' take on this by the way that Kushner's strategy has differed so remarkably from everyone else who's been caught up in the Russia investigation, which is to say, 
he's coming clean, or he wants you to think he's coming clean. I think right. we should say that if one, like, if he is found to have had a Russian Uber driver that he did not disclose, he's cooked, right? Well, At this point, he's sort of laughing. I don't mean said. has I think been that's iterative. Not right. well, okay, well, let's talk about that in a second. But there's there's the transparency thing, right? And I would I'd love to get your take on what you guys think his strategy is there. And then let's also take that question: Is there still are there still meetings with Russians or whatever that that could he could be revealed to have had, and he could sustain that? Well, so let's but, take let's take the first question first. So I think I think this is the critical point. It's incredibly carefully parsed statement, and and a point actually I don't think it'll have been published yet. But in our foreign been in my foreign policy, it just got published. It just got published. So you can erase your computer screen and read it. Um, uh, you know, we make the point that you know you do have to give sort of the presumption of uh of the truth to this document because very good lawyers vetted it and they wouldn't allow they wouldn't allow their client to say something they knew to be a lie. The question is what they knew, right? <laughs> right. So that, that doesn't. Right. You, it still, you know, opens the the possibility that uh, Kushner's not being candid with his attorneys, but at least that sort of they don't think anything else is going to come out. But whenever you actually like look at the very, very carefully parsed language, he says he never met with Russian government officials or people who he had reason to believe were Russian government officials or were connected to the Russian government. We know the Russian government uses all kinds of cutouts. So the question really is, is what is the degree of remoteness or the degree of removal? that would make Jared Kushner feel comfortable at having not, you know, violated, you know, 1001 for the, you know, not had made a materially false statement to Congress. I, I don't think though this is Jared Kushner saying, I didn't meet with any other Russians. There's no, absolutely nothing else. I think else. this is Jared Kushner saying, hey, I'm naive. This was an unusual campaign. Yes. I didn't, you know, I just got sucked deeper into it. And I and didn't have a big middle on which to piece. judge. You know? I, which I think I you guys are all burying the lead. <laughs> 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 okay. The, let's start with the major news value of this statement, which is that Jared Kushner issued an 11-page factual statement at all. That is a show of strength on the part of him and his lawyers. Um, and both, the fourth revision of his no, no, security just, clearance I'm, form I'm, I'm not, is not saying, a show I'm, of strength. Wait, I'm not saying uh, this is best practices. I'm not, but if you believed that your client, as a as a practicing criminal lawyer, if you believed that your client had major criminal exposure, the last thing you would let him do is issue eleven pages of factual statements on the, you know that you're giving to a congressional committee under uh, and then go ask answer questions about it two days in a row you do not do that unless you believe you understand the parameters of the situation and that your client's exposure is very limited and that whatever problems the trump campaign may have uh are not the problems of your client as opposed to somebody else and <laughs> that's in, the key point yeah and, and so there's and, an element of throwing under the bus th here. yes there is a big element of throwing people under the bus here and it takes place in three separate locations in the document the first is his treatment of the meeting at trump tower with the russian lawyer which he uh, his account is he came in late left early, didn't know what it was about, didn't meet the, make the email, read the email thread, and asked somebody to get him out of there early because it was so boring and missed all the part where they talked about collusion and just got the adoption part. 
He actually has some documentary evidence of that in the form of the text that he sent. Can you please yeah. call Who them? among us has not asked their secretary no. to call them in a meeting exactly. to get out of the meeting? Right? I actually used to have a code with a friend of mine in the office that I would text and then she would call me and, to get me out And of that stuff. entire that entire passage has a giant subtext, which is, Donnie, you're on your own on yep. this one. Uh, second thing is where he says that um, – and I don't have the exact text in front of me – that um, – you know that he he says right at the end of the document, I did not collude, and I don't know of anyone else who did. He didn't doesn't say there was no collusion. And if you could go stronger on that as his lawyer, you would. But the point is, they don't know what else happened that he wasn't aware of, and so they're basically saying, I don't I don't have a problem here. Um, I'm not speaking on behalf of anyone else. And I think you should take that. The broad thing that you should take away from that is that Jared Kushner's lawyers feel pretty good about their situation. And there's some embarrassing stuff in there for him, particularly about the SF-86, particularly about the just insane proposal he made to use Russian diplomatic facilities to have a conversation with Russian generals. But you do not behave that way if you think you're giving people evidence that will be used against your client for criminal purposes. But I think that this point about what he concedes about the reason why he was establishing this covert communication channel, right, of asking to use the, the Russian embassy, was that it was about talking about Syria with their military officers. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Let's go back to where we were in time. Uh, Donald Trump was not the president of the United States. Barack Obama was the president of the United States. The Aleppo campaign was ongoing <laughs> yes, at that moment. Yes, in an ongoing military engagement. The notion that it would be appropriate at on any set of facts to be having conversations between the incoming president's team and the generals, Russian generals, on Syria strategy is just, it's inconceivable. And we, we've talked about, oh, you know, it's never the Logan Act. It's never the Logan Act. Right? This is a, just a blatant violation of kind of the one president at a time rule that we've talked a lot about. It's the reason why Michael Flynn got in so much trouble. There was so much suspicion about him having these calls with Kislyak. Oh, was he undermining the president's strategy? Was he undermining sanctions? Was he doing something in the transition period? We now have Jared Kushner completely admitting that he was attempting to have a communication about military strategy without consulting with DOD and in a way that DOD wouldn't have insight into, that to me is a shocking story that like nobody seems to be reacting let to. Let me, I think that's, I think that's a great point. And, and, and to that, let me propose the question and then I'll, I'll phrase it a bit indelicately. Does this document prove that Jared Kushner is really as dumb as he seems, right? Because there is the only, the, the explanation for all of this is, pure ignorance, like mm -hmm. that he had no idea the sensitivity of what he was proposing. It's actually been reported that when he asked for the secret communications channel in the embassy, even Sergei Kislyak reported back like, what is this guy thinking? Yeah. You know, so there, I mean, there's a, there's a, there's an element of like demonstrable ignorance well, it's in so, this, which is completely beyond... at odds, by the way, with Jared Kushner as the center of power in the White House, who's reinventing government and solving Middle totally, East peace. Totally, totally agree with that. And look, he may be smart in general, <clears throat> 
But you use the word ignorance, and I think that's the right word. It's the ignorance of how both politics and policy work, yeah. that there should have been red flags going up all over these approaches by the Russians and others. And anyone with an ounce of political sense would say, I don't want to make my boss, the president elect vulnerable in this way. You know, and, and so it's the ignorance that's really striking. And it's also the lack of that protective instinct. Because the reason Jared Kushner is in the position that he's in is because the president trusts him for whatever reason. And so in addition to displaying his ignorance, to me, this statement and the fact pattern that it presents suggests that Jared is not actually as good at protecting Donald Trump as Donald Trump thinks he is. Right. And, you know, as as you noted with the throwing under the bus uh, parts of this, he's very self-protective. He's very good at protecting himself. So if I were Donald Trump, I would be feeling a little iffy about this guy now no i think that's right i mean like it shows demonstrably bad judgment and so i don't like the i, I can't remember what um i think it was the atlantic that ran an article um you know jared kushner the prince of having it both ways he doesn't get to both benefit from like oh shucks i didn't know nothing i don't know anything it was just an accident anybody would have done this and also you know leading u.s china policy and solving peace in the middle east and being the head of restructuring the entire federal government because that like, may not be the guy you want doing that if this why is how do he we get policy to and it's not it's not just ignorance it's a lack of judgment which is something yes. it's something different and, and deeper yeah so i want to disaggregate a couple issues so i don't disagree with anything you said on uh the apparent, one might even say, idiocy of some of the things he's admitting about himself here. Um, but I do think uh, for present purposes, and, and I reserve all of those questions and they're all legitimate, but when I read this document, my reaction to it was, what does this tell us about the Russia uh, Trump stuff and collusion? And what it told me on that score was that uh, Jared is not especially concerned about his position, um, and that therefore, if we're if you're looking for where the nexus of actual possible like real misconduct in the Trump campaign look uh, resides, it's probably more in the Flynn uh, and and other areas people. You know, who are silent now and who are, you know, have gone to ground, uh, rather than people who are showing up at the Senate Intelligence Committee issuing large, uh, long statements and actually putting out quite embarrassing stuff about their own conduct. Uh, that is in the context of criminal investigations, generally a show of strength. Okay. Time for field reports. Bet, bet you wish you hadn't come back, guys. <laughs> I'd like to go back to beautiful Aspen, Colorado right now, where the air is cool and thin. Um, yeah, well, and I have to say, if there was one week to be out of Washington, it was last week when it was like 93 degrees and 100% humidity here. It was 93 degrees in Amman, but at least it was dry. It nice. is a desert plateau. Nice. So. Um, Tammy, why don't you start? Bring us your reports from the field, and I'm particularly interested in what our friends in the region think about <laughs> our little play. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's interesting that although our soap opera consumes us every waking hour, as perhaps it should, um, when you get 
10,000 or so miles away from Washington. Um, the main concern is, mm, will Trump still be president? Um, but beyond that, really, just what is American policy on these issues that are really existential issues for uh, folks out in the region? I was in Jordan during a very interesting week when the deconfliction zone that the U.S. and Russia have negotiated for this little bit of southern uh, Syria on the Jordanian border was set to go into effect. So um, there was a lot of speculation about, number one, whether that would work. Number two, would the Russians actually be willing to put their own people on the line to enforce uh, this de-escalation this de zone? Uh, and number three, would Jordan get any of the benefits of um, aid flows and reconstruction flows into this zone if it actually works? Um, it's a really, really tentative time. Of course, I was also in Jordan the week that tensions in Jerusalem were flaring over uh, the installation of metal detectors at the entrance mm -hmm. to the uh, Temple Mount Al-Aqsa compound. Uh, there were demonstrations in Amman in sympathy with Palestinians on Friday, and there was um, later in the weekend a violent incident at the Israeli embassy in Jordan uh, that resulted in the death of a Jordanian who assaulted an Israeli security guard at the embassy. Um, and I was in Jordan the week that a Jordanian uh, soldier was convicted in the murder last year of three American soldiers who were in Jordan conducting a training exercise, and he shot them as they tried to come back on base. Uh, and he was sentenced to life in prison. And that also led to some demonstrations among members of his tribe who were unhappy with the outcome. So all of this, I think, is just an illustration of how volatile uh, this region is and how uh, little Jordan, which has seemed to somehow maintain its stability in the midst of all the chaos swirling around it, in fact, is constantly affected by things that are going on uh, in the neighborhood. And everything in the Middle East really is connected to everything else. And coming away with that sense of volatility uh, and delicacy just brought home to me how disappointing, how dangerous, how worrisome it is that we have an administration which not only doesn't seem to know very much what it's doing in this part of the world, but doesn't seem much to care. It was notable to me that all week there was no word from the president of the United States about this crisis in Jerusalem. And even today, he hasn't said a word about and it. And were people there, I mean, did you sense that they were disappointed, anxious, uh, but they share your view on how the administration is or isn't focusing on the region? I think that they are looking for whatever they can get. And so if it's engagement from the U.S. military or the Defense Department or the State Department, they will take it and they will take it at face value and believe that it means something about American policy because they have to. Um, but the absence of a broader strategic uh, voice from the United States saying, this is what we're trying to do. This is what we're here for. This is what we're not here for. Things that Barack Obama did very clearly in ways that upset people in the region, but at least they knew where they stood. Uh, and I think it's the absence of any clarity from Washington that they found most troubling. Who is the – so there's, Jared Kushner has the Middle East portfolio, but there's the official whose name I'm blanking on now. Jason Greenblatt. Jason Greenblatt, right. I'm curious about his role in all of this too because he seems to be the person who is getting dispatched when real work needs to be done in the region – particularly with regards to Israeli-Palestinian issues, and has seems to have a pretty significant amount of credibility. 
He's made a good impression on everyone he's met with because he seems to be a very good listener and he takes everyone's point of view seriously. He's not coming in with an agenda of his own. On the other hand, um, what I heard from a number of people was that he really doesn't know anything. Right. Um, he's kind of soaking up information, but he's not coming in you know, as somebody who's really thought hard about this and has some ideas about how to make it better. And so as with the rest of Trump administration policy that leaves uh, actors in the region feeling like they're kind of on their own. And I think it's precisely that absence of a strong American steer that leaves them without any way of constraining the, the, the escalatory impulses or the spoilers or the other negative forces in, in this very, very volatile space. So this feeling of being highly disoriented, it's interesting. So I was at that, that last week at the Aspen Security Forum. Wait, wait, wait. But, before we get to the Aspen Security Forum, but, did people seem beleaguered? <laughs> <laughs> they, f- they did seem besieged. Besieged. Yes, I that part of the world, they frequently feel that way. <laughs> okay, yeah. but, 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 but on the, on the midi scale of And they were bemoaning <laughs> their fate. So on, on the beleaguered <laughs> scale, if, if Jeff, Jeff Sessions is a, is a 9 or a 10 – what is Jordan? Oh, God, I think Jordan is like at least an 11 on the beleaguered scale. All right. Jeff Sessions, only one point lower than Jordan. <laughs> so, hey, we're better off here than Jordan. Okay, right so, yeah. so how beleaguered are the folks in Aspen? I would say the folks in Aspen probably felt on Jeff Sessions' scale of beleaguerment around between a 6 and a 7, depending on who you ask. I mean, I, I so joke. I'd rather be Aspen. Oh, you than, definitely. Than Jeff Sessions, and you'd <clears throat> yeah. rather, still rather be <laughs> Jeff, Jeff Sessions, Sessions than, than Jordan. Jordan. Than yes. Jordan. Yeah, we should all go to Aspen. <laughs> it's lovely. Um, I joked with some people uh, that the silent hashtag for the conference could just be WTF because there was this, it was this pervasive sense of just being completely disoriented. And, you know, the nationalist security establishment, which is there, they, this is kind of where we everyone hangs out for a week, not um, everyone. Shane. Well, not everyone. Not yes, everyone. Seriously. Okay, fine. <laughs> Only some of us. people like you. <laughs> yeah. I Only people like you, Shane. Gracious. <laughs> so sensitive. Um, He's drinking out of his Aspen water I mean, bottle, you know, just it, rubbing it in our faces. <laughs> well, we were all at Jane Harmon's Bond Villain Mansion in the mountains. <laughs> oh, and oh, no. <laughs> well, my point being is that you had like this, you had much of the Trump administration establishment as well that was there, right? And <clears throat> I think it's fair to say, even among some people in the administration, probably, there was this sense of just great disorientation, like the frame has been blown apart. And the sense of how presidents are supposed to behave regardless of party is gone. And that has this profound disruptive effect over everything, right? And everyone's sort of walking around, and much as it's been <clears throat> the case in Washington for the past seven or seven, six or seven months now um, of people still trying to find their bearings and they're just gone. Um, no one knows which way is up or down and there's the sense that anything could change in a second and any shoe could drop. Um, every and- panel, regardless of whether it was about Russia, was about Russia. Um, every senior administration official who was there, and there were many of them from General Dunford to Director Pompeo, Director Coates, Secretary Kelly from DHS, every single one was asked the same question. Do you support the intelligence community's unanimous conclusion that Russia interfered with the election? Uh, and Mike Rogers, Admiral Rogers was there too, being the only one of the people still serving in government who, who was there who helped contribute to that assessment. He's an Obama holdover, you know. Oh, sure. <laughs> <laughs> that little side sojourn to Bedminster Golf Club that one weekend uh, yeah. aside. Um, but, you know, it, it was um, 
Yeah, I mean, it was, this is really kind of how it, that, that pervasive feeling. And So um, wait, just the <clears> fact <throat> that every single Trump official got asked that same right. question. And they all answered the same way, which is yes. Yeah. And they all answered the same way, which is yes. And the obvious follow-up is, so why does your boss keep saying yes? Yeah, but sure. Yes and varying, nobody really wanted to answer that question. Right, but yes mm-hmm. with varying degrees of... <clears throat> undercutting it i mean i thought i thought yeah. uh, the vast majority gave very very clear yes unambiguously there was no dissent there's no question here but then mike pompeo went a little bit further and gave he sort of did. a like well yes but they've also been doing that since the 80s sort yeah, of he said arguments. it happened in the previous election and the one before that and the one before that and i was talking afterwards to a former director of the agency <clears throat> who said you know look he's clearly making a reference here to the fact that the Soviet Union did do things to try and through propaganda and undermining and, you know, trying to stoke up people on campuses and all the rest. But to compare that with the scale and the sophistication of what we saw in 2016, this person thought actually seems to try to be to 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 dampen uh, the uniqueness of that 2016 intervention. Uh, and Pompeo, I should say, is the only one of the senior people who were there who got really testy on this point. I mean, at one point he was asked about it. Uh, I think Richard Benvenista, who was a 9-11 commission member, kind of came back to it again in the question session. And Pompeo said, you know, I've only been asked about this 19 times, so I guess it'll have to be one more. Um, uh, And and clearly did not want to move on from this, um, which was something that, you know, Everyone is saying you can't because they're it's coming back, <laughs> right? I mean, they're here and these active measures are even still continuing. There were a number of uh, panelists, Clinton Watts is probably the chief among them, saying like, look, this question of what they're going to do it again in 2018 is a yes. And by the way, they're still here and all these armies of bots and these information campaigns that they've learned and understand and perfected so well, um, they're still using those assets and those resources that hasn't stopped. Uh, so it was, um, yeah, it was a sobering couple of days. Up in the mountains, in the beautiful, clear air. But you look of tan, so and very rich. rested. So rich. <laughs> it is ridiculous how expensive it is there, but whatever. So let's move on to object lessons. Did you bring any shiny baubles back? I didn't bring any <laughs> shiny baubles back, but I did um, have a just a wonderful sort of unexpected visit. Uh, I was walking down a street in downtown Amman called Rainbow Street, which is very well known. And uh, I I had uh, met someone for lunch there and um, ended up finding my way into this beautiful courtyard, which turned out to be uh, the courtyard of the Jordan River Foundation, uh, which is a, a foundation uh, that does environmental work and supports uh, traditional handicrafts in Jordan. And one of the one of the lovely things about uh, Jordanian society is the kind of proliferation of civil society organizations, including environmental groups. Um, this is one that has royal patronage, and so it's very successful. But it has this great little showroom where they uh, where they sell goodies that have been produced by. Um, local villages or uh, women who are trying to preserve traditional tribal embroidery. Uh, and so I I did bring back a beautiful little wall uh, art piece, which is a wooden cutout of a pomegranate. Um, and the pomegranate is beautiful Palestinian embroidery. And uh, so I was very happy to bring that little piece of Jordan back with me and to support both traditional handicrafts and environmental protection. Excellent. My object lesson is another podcast. 
the War on the Rocks bombshell podcast, which we have talked about in the past. Which we love. Which we love. you should all subscribe to. And I was very honored to be the guest this week. But you were the the bombshell on the bombshell. Is the guest the bombshell? They should make it that way. (laughs) Um, uh, And whenever we were recording, there was a cheese platter. There was strawberry shortcake. It was like a spa day, but recording a podcast. Oh, guys, we got to up our game. Shane, would it kill you to bake a scone? Bring in a little something. Make it more homey. I just want to send a message to the bombshell podcast people, which is that there is one great glass ceiling left in Washington, which is that men are not allowed on the Bombshell podcast. Oh, no, they no, are. No, There's no, many no, men. No, no, no. Do not go down that road, my friend. There have been men on the, on the Bombshell podcast. I don't think there have. have. I, I'm almost, I think um, I'm going to forget his name now, but I, I don't think that's First accurate. of all, I, I don't know that you're correct about that particular glass ceiling, but second of all, Welcome to our world, buddy. Like, get over yeah, it, dude. I would, I, look, all I'm saying is, I want to be on the Bombshell podcast, and I and I. It's you true. Know, now that I've admitted that there's like he's got Bombshell and envy. I'm totally open about it. I, I you know, I'll, and and I, I I think those those people are really cool, and I love that podcast, and I even have rip roaring great answers to their question about what my favorite statistical model is. That is big. Um, And I've got a story that will break up every member of their readership in response to that. Uh, Okay. And and actually, I'm going to go one step further, and it involves Steve Krasner. (laughs) So... Like if if with that as a as a tease, you guys don't have me on the bombshell mm-hmm. podcast. Well, eat your heart out. With it. Yeah, I mean, I I don't know what to say. Would you settle for scones here instead? I would. <laughs> I want scones and the bombshell and the bombshell. Podcast. So this right. is my pitch, guys. Have me on the bombshell podcast, and I'll tell you the Krasner story. All right, there you go. It involves <clears throat> my mom too. Oh, well. <clears throat> hey, it's a bonus. Well, that brings us to the end of this podcast. Rational Security is a production of Spaghetti on the Wall Productions. You can find our show archives at our website. You can follow us on Facebook. You can find us on Twitter at R-A-T-L Security. And you can download the podcast from Apple Podcasts or Stitcher. Wherever you do, please leave us a five-star rating and review. It really helps us out. And you guys have been great about that lately, so thanks again. Our audio engineer is Quinta Jurassic. The show is edited by Jen Patya Howell. Our music was performed this week by Jeff Sessions and the beleaguered Jared Botts. <laughs> That's good. Nice. Sort of random word salad for right? around the like they're like they're like, they're like they're like standing in the back like, <laughs> yeah, like and like mal- malfunctioning a little bit. They're, they're kind of coming out to make a statement in the right. White House lawn. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Good. Um, uh, I'm sure that the Jared Bots would be a great backup though to Sophia Yan, who is our actual music. Thank you, Sophia. You don't have to take the Jared Bots, by the way. We're not forcing them on you. <laughs> She's too good for the Jared Bots. We should be forced to to have them as the backup singer. (laughs) On behalf of my friends Susan Hennessy, Ben Wittes, and Tamar Kaufman Wittes, I'm Shane Harris. We'll talk to you next week. Thank you for listening. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.